0: Thank you. And welcome to part two of Deborah Powney's podcast episode. If you've listened to part one, you'll have heard all about Deborah's mental health journey. In part two, we talk about the work that Deborah's done as a domestic abuse researcher and all of the work she does to support male victims of domestic abuse and partner violence. So, this is how part two of my conversation with Deborah Powney went. <laughs> We've talked all about your mental health journey, Debs. I want to go and talk about your academic journey now and how you turned this decade of trauma and abuse into this new journey, which is Breaking Down Myths. It's hopefully helping the conversation about domestic violence as well. You've explained a little bit already, but tell me how the journey into academia began because it started quite late, didn't it, relatively?
1: Yeah, and it was born of losing my dad, actually. Like you said previously, my dad died six weeks after I would got married to John and it gave me an existential crisis. I did that thing about why am I here? What am I doing with my life? And all that kind of (laughs) stuff (laughs) is typical kind of midlife crisis thing. But instead of buying a motorbike, John, who's a professional drummer, who is very proud of the fact that he's he's never had a real job <laughs> <So he's>, um, <laughs> said to me he asked me two questions, and I, i've I've said this often and dined out on it on numerous occasions, but he asked me two very simple questions, and it's usually simple questions that will change your life. He asked me what I'd always wanted to do with my life, and I'd said, well, i had a a real want to continue with psychology after my uh, undergrad. But obviously life gets in the way and you get a job and a family and all the rest of it. So I said psychology. And then the next question was, and what's stopping you? And actually, (laughs) that was probably one of the most profound questions I've ever been asked. Because the answer was nothing. I'd now got a stable family with my then new husband and my kids. I'd got a bit of money. And my dad had also left me a bit of money, so I didn't have to go to work. My husband was financially okay as well. So I I was in a position where the only thing that was stopping me was me. So I had a look around and decided I was going to do a master's in psychology. I decided to do it at UCLan, University of Central Lancashire in Preston, because A, it was one of the closest universities to me. But B, it had a master's course that was accredited by the British Psychological Society, BPS. And I've always been one to, if you're going to do it, do it properly. So I applied to do the master's and with my work experience and my previous education and got onto the course. And devoured it. (laughs) I absolutely (laughs) adored it. It was a course that was various different modules of psychology from forensic, biological, evolutionary, social psychology, and then it culminated in a dissertation. The question I the burning question I had, and I have no qualms in saying this was a case of Doctor Heal Thyself. I went to do my research to find out how I got myself into that shit was my opening question on my notebook.
0: Took the words out of my notes right away. uh,
1: (laughs) um, That was my question for research. And I started it by trying to understand it from his perspective. So I wanted to understand what it was like from a perpetrator's perspective. What was it? Because again, Although the question was how did I get myself into that shit, it wasn't that I was blaming myself for that. I wanted to understand what made him tick, so that I didn't get myself into that shit again. You know, so I, I took it from the sort of triad, the dark triad, the dark it, triad. Yeah, so I read it's, about this. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, antisocial, narcissistic, and Machiavellian. Those kind of concepts in psychology. I would say, from my perspective. They are all levels of psychopathy. If you go and look at the DSM and, and look it up, they're just rather nasty, horrible people. So I, I did, did research on that. And then when it got to my dissertation, I did my dissertation on protective factors for female victims of sexual violence. And I looked at resilience, vulnerability, and facial emotion recognition and started to investigate something called alexithymia, which is lack of emotion recognition from facial We're emotion. going very
0: academic here. I yeah, love yeah, it. Yeah, yeah.
1: So and that's how we function as a species. You and I have a conversation much easier by looking at each other and understanding our facial expressions when when we're speaking. But in victims of sexual abuse, I found that an alexithymia stops you having that recognition. And this was specific to female victims because I couldn't find any research on male victims in this area. That was the only reason why. And I actually stated that in my dissertation. So if you're sexually abused as a child, your cortisol stress levels, stress hormone is set at a higher rate. So you function at this hyper, hyper vigilant PTSD level. I describe Mm -hmm. it to people Mm -hmm. that have never experienced PTSD or this this level of stress induced hyper vigilance that it's like trying to get out of the house when you're late and you can't find your car keys. You might oh, have the yeah. car keys in your hand, but you can't see them because you're too busy looking for them. You, you're, in, you're in that state.
0: Yeah, I've lived that experience Everybody many times.
1: And when you describe it like that, everyone gets it, that you, if you're functioning on that level, you're set at a higher level, which means that your cortisol levels are so high that when you have a risk factor of someone that might be about to abuse you, we've all had this feeling where you've been in a place with someone or you've been in a room with someone and all of a sudden there's a tone change or something's changed and you've gone oh is it that time already i must be going or oh is that my phone i've got to go you know and you find a way of getting yourself hopefully find a way of getting yourself out of that situation when your stress levels are that high that trigger that is triggered by a release of cortisol doesn't make any difference it doesn't add So you're not aware of those risk factors until it's too late, essentially. That's if you're abused as a child. If you're abused as an adult, cortisol has a real detrimental effect on the brain and it essentially damages the brain. So if you're constantly victimized as an adult, your brain, who is a selfish organ and wants to protect itself, that's why we feel pain when we get toothache and things like that, it's it's trying to protect the brain by making you keep the body mm-hmm. okay. So what will happen is the brain goes, nah, I'm gonna switch off this trigger that you've got where the cortisol keeps coming in because it's damaging me. But one of those triggers is safety. So if you're in a situation again where the tone changes or the facial emotion recognition changes and this is known to happen, your cortisol doesn't kick in. So again, you're not your body's not, oh, there's a there's danger, there's danger. Your body's like, everything's fine and then you get re-victimized you're in a situation then that you can't get out of you don't it prevents you taking action that fight or flight gets switched off so i'd switched it from studying this notion of the perpetrator to looking at the victim because my hypothesis is you can't have a perpetrator without a victim so there's some fit somewhere there's something that fits somewhere And I need to understand what that is, essentially, so that I don't fit that ever again. (laughs) It was purely selfish, my masters. But Mm. as I was going along on this, again, certain elements kept jumping up, like, why are there no studies on men in this? Was a big thing, and that's why I wrote it explicitly in the thing. But also there was this notion that everything that I came across to do with domestic abuse or something like that, it portrayed this... Broken female, very vulnerable victim that was broken pre victimization. That's why she was victimized. She was then broken for life after it and subject to various other things. And I just thought, that's not me. That doesn't reflect me in any way. And then I thought, Am I, was I a victim? And it made me question it. Yeah, I definitely was. (laughs) You know, I've got the evidence to show that it was and the police reports Mm. and all this kind of stuff. So yeah, that definitely was. But it had such a narrow view that it made me go to my second, who is now my second supervisor, was my supervisor for my dissertation and start asking questions. And she was like, oh, right. Well, now you've opened the the rabbit hole. You're going to jump in.
0: Mm. And that's
1: what took me to look at it as part of my PhD that my supervisor for my dissertation is my second supervisor and my first supervisor Professor Nicola Graham Kevin is a leading light in aggression and certainly in male victims she's been doing it for decades now and so when I started asking her the question she was like go and take a look at this go and have a look at that then come back to me and see if you want to do a PhD on this. And I was raging. (laughs) I was absolutely raging. And there was two things that I had in my head for my PhD. A, victims of domestic abuse aren't permanently broken and they can come from any type of background and any kind of history, but they certainly can adapt positively. A, I'm one of them. B, I know several others that are. And then the second thing was, this isn't just women. I speak to men and I speak to gay people, straight people, pan people, whatever people. And I speak to black people, Asian people, Indian people. Everyone is affected by this. So how come we're only talking about this really narrow element of perpetrated by men on women because they are women crap? Where's that come from? And then, Of course, that led me down the rabbit hole of going, oh, right, that's where it comes
0: (laughs) from. Let's talk about that rabbit hole, because when you spoke to me off air, the issue of male domestic abuse first started to be talked about more prominently, I believe, in academia in a paper written by Susan Steinmet in the 1970s Mm. called Battered Husbands. Mm -hmm. Now... You said this paper was swept under the carpet mm. and the paper's author didn't just get cancelled mm. in modern terms but also received yeah, yeah. death threats too. Can you talk about that? And also another feminist researcher called Murray Strauss yeah. who, right, who tried yeah. to do this as well.
1: So in the 1970s, the women's movement brought domestic abuse to the fore. We cannot deny that in any way. It was really brought to the public's attention that this isn't just a domestic which is, is very much how it was it was written off. I've since written a chapter where I've described it as the poster child for the patriarchy. It was held up as a physical manifestation of women's oppression. Now, if you have that as your poster child, it becomes a, a tenant of your ideology, your belief system. So that's what they started to do. They started to investigate. Academics started to investigate this. Feminist academics started to investigate this. In the 70s, but only from the perspective of female victims, male perpetrators. And then Susan came along, and there was a paper Dobash and Dobash, and someone else—the name escapes me—talked about wife battering. Now Susan wrote a paper, and it's a very small paper. You can still get it if anyone listening wants it. Please feel free to email me. I do have a, a PDF copy of it, <laughs> um, called "Battered Husbands." And in that, what she'd done, and she was way ahead of her time, really, but she'd taken things like cartoons and newspaper articles and started talking about how battering of men, and husbands particularly, is normalised in these cartoons and things like that. Now, one of my daughter's favourite Disney films when she was growing up, my daughter had very, very, very long blonde hair when she was little. She could sit on it. And so she adored the Disney film Tangled. And so did I. I absolutely loved it. We used to, I've watched it a gazillion times as you know four and five year olds do. <laughs> but when I got into this, I realized that Rapunzel has a frying pan and she constantly batters this this lad with I know I'm laughing, but she constantly batters this lad with a pan and actually, that's what Susan had done. She'd found out these cartoons and shown these elements that actually violence against men is normalized. And she just put this paper out and holy heck, what a reaction she got. She was cancelled. She was demonised. I've got a lot of what I've labelled vintage feminist texts from that era where she is mentioned in books, uh, Steinmetz has said this and ha, 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 she's this and she's that and like literally calling her names and literally a fraud in these books and she's this and she's not for women and this that and the other letters were written to her employer to get her canceled she received bomb threats and ultimately she was so harassed that she left research
0: this is all by other women this is by, women. The way, just this is by other women yeah
1: and a couple of men in there there's a couple of the books that that are in there but f- feminists
0: predominantly yeah, yeah so yeah. even
1: even men that identify as feminists this was an absolute outrage so she left it. But then before she left, she actually did some work with Maurice Strauss, who was a male feminist. Okay, you can go and look them up all over YouTube. There's some great... He, he only died a few years ago, so recently, that my supervisor did some work with him and, and things like that. She she went to see him and, and things. He set out to kind of misbust, and he was going to show that men are nowhere near. Women, it's, it's women that are victims, but part of his research for one of the first studies ever that had included men, included men and women, and then literally looked at it and went, hmm, it's the same. It's the same on frequency. It's the same on this. The only thing he said that was different was that on physical effects, women would be more injured yeah. because men are, tend to be bigger and stronger. I'll say something biology. about that yeah, in my research as we, we move through, which is a given. If you're going to have people that have fist fights, and like I said, I'm five foot one and about eight and a half stone these days. But if you and I had a fight,
0: <laughs> I don't... there's only one winner. I mean, I'm not no, trying to bring absolutely. myself up here, but biology absolutely. speaking, there's yeah, only the one The chances
1: winner. are you're going to win. The difference <laughs> is, and again, I'll explain this more going forward. What I found in my research, as have many others since, is that women balance those scales by weaponizing. However, we'll get onto that later. So Murray Strauss found this and then thought, holy crap, I'm going to take this back and then hid his data for ages. And then someone else said, you need to publish this. If you're going to be a proper researcher and a proper science, you nearly publish it. And he did. And then all hell broke loose. And he got excommunicated. He got canceled for tenure. In in America, if you, you go through the ranks, you get tenure and you can literally research what you want and say what you want. And you can't get cancelled, allegedly, if you get tenure. So he got hundreds of letters written to employers or prospective employers, funding pulled, all the rest of it. Bless him, he never changed his mind. He carried on all the way through. Similar story with a guy called Donald Dutton. And I absolutely urge you to go and look for a conference he did in 2008. It's on YouTube where he talks about how the gender narrative has hidden the data. And he goes through it like they do this, not doing the cherry pick. They only interview women and then they only do this. And then they frame the questions so they're like this. And honestly, it's a complete breakdown of critical thinking. And he just destroys the feminist narrative in a very calm, collective, and logical manner. So he did the same. He thought everything was about. Men perpetrating on women because they are women. And then he went and did some research and then bought out a book in 2006 going that was titled Rethinking Domestic Abuse, where all of a sudden it's like, <laughs> holy crap, that's not what it was and it's not what it is. And actually, this is the explanation. Yeah. So you can see this where, and I think, um, oh, he's going to absolutely kill me. He did a book called The Myth of Masculinity for Farrell. Warren. Oh, Warren, 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 Warren yes.
0: Farrell. I read uh, The Boy Crisis yes. a couple months ago. Brilliant Amazing guy.
1: Book. Absolutely brilliant. If you ever get the chance to talk to him, please talk to him. He's fantastic. Or
0: oh, the myth of male yes. power. The Is myth it myth of male power? power. Yes, now, now, there he we he yeah. was
1: an absolute raging feminist.
0: <laughs> yeah, he talks. he's talked about it openly, like back in the 70s and Gloria, when he was meeting John Lennon and Gloria all those people. Steinman yeah.
1: and all that. Those kind of like the big yeah. leading feminists in America were like, he was an advisor to them. And then it happened to him and he, he all of a sudden he yeah. was like, what is this? This is not what, it, what we thought it was. And all of a sudden things change. So this is something that's been going on for 50 years, 50 years of literally cherry picking, filtering. I did a, a little video on something I stole. The, well, I didn't, I'm borrowing the phrase of Brett Weinstein. He does the dark horse. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah, I know, I know all about Weird. Brett. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm into the d- intellectual yeah, dark yeah. and web he, so.
1: And um, he he does that <laughs> fantastic thing with his his wife Heather, and also did all that stuff at the Insane College.
0: Evergreen, yeah. Also know yeah. all about that.
1: So he talks about something that, that he was applying to Evergreen called idea laundering, and how you essentially you will get duff science it's literally ideology masquerading as science and you'll take it to the journals like legitimate science journals and they will go <laughs> off you trot and then so what happens is all these people got together and you have to remember i'm not wearing a tinfoil hat here the feminist movement was unbelievably well funded so the academic arm of the feminist movement then created their own journals. And the idea of peer review means that people in your field review your work. So if they are of the mm. same mindset as you and they're trying to create knowledge, and I am doing the inverted commas thing. yeah, it's an echo. Yeah. So it goes, oh, fantastic. You believe what I believe. So we will now declare this yeah. academic knowledge.
0: Self-flagellation, yeah. and isn't you build it, really? Up, yeah. You build yeah. that
1: duff science up to such an extent that it becomes a mass of knowledge and then it becomes a module once you have a certain level of knowledge it can become a module that is taught in universities so then you're teaching duff science which in turn creates more duff science so it's this idea that you put this is how they launder dirty science into an attempt to make it legitimate knowledge and you can see this throughout the whole thing. If you take a gender narrative paper on domestic abuse, chances are they've either only interviewed women. They more than likely have only interviewed women that have been victimised by men. If you say to a woman that's been, if you interviewed me and said, Debs, have you been victimised by a man? yes. So you can then go and say women are victimised by men.
0: <laughs> Not interviewing any lesbians, either, yeah, by ab- the way.
1: absolutely. So it's it's a very narrow thing. But then, if you look at the questions that they're asked, the questions will be what we call researching from your conclusion. Leading yeah, questions. So if you yeah. if you've concluded yeah, yeah, yeah. that women are abused by women because of societal inequalities, you would then ask the question: Do you believe in the gender pay gap? Yes. I don't, but. A lot of people do. Yes. Okay, so you think you're oppressed by men. Yes. Okay, do you believe the patriarchy is this? It gives a completely narrow, manufactured view to get the right responses. And you can see this mirrored. I've included a section in this, once I've pulled my thesis together, it's in there. But I've included a section called The Systemic Bias Against Men. And I've gone through male victims. I've gone through various academic, governmental, And influential reports that literally show how men have been ignored (laughs) throughout the whole thing, how they've literally been sidelined. And the Office for National Statistics, when it was creating questions for coercive control, they were asking questions about fear and various things like that. And fear of crime is known innately to be higher in women. So you've already stacked the deck there. Again, I can talk about my research and men and fear in that, and it's slightly different fear. Mm. But the question is, ask, are you frightened of your partner? A man that's abused, and I'll explain the reasons why later, will often say, no, I'm not frightened of my partner. A woman will say yes because her fear is manifested directly at that partner, and there's a subtle difference that I'll, I'll explain later. So in all the questions that were very formulated on the experiences of female victims, The only one where men scored massively higher than women was a question that was, are you afraid of losing the relationship with your children? Which we know is a barrier for men leaving and often a barrier for Mm. men even telling the police because they don't want to Mm. even consider them being pulled out of a, a household where their children might be abused by that person if they're not there to protect them. So out of all the scores... Men were the highest when it came to that losing the relationship with their children. And guess what the committee that was mainly feminist organisations decided to do?
0: I have an idea in my head, but I'll let you say it.
1: (laughs) They removed the question.
0: Yeah, that's what I thought they were going (laughs) to do.
1: And it was because it'll be intrinsically biased against women. And that was the answer. But the reason it's intrinsically biased against women is societally, we believe that when there's a divorce or a breakup of some description, women will be the main carers of their children. That's why 92% Mm. of all applications for contact into court are from men. Otherwise, it'd be 50-50, surely. So that's why it would be skewed towards men, because we're biased towards men in the first place. (laughs) So that's double bias there. So those are the Mm. kind of ways that men are filtered out of the system all the way through the system. So, for example, the Office for National Statistics shows that one in three victims of domestic abuse now is a man.
0: At least, isn't it? Or something at least, at least well, that's but without this is capturing no, in stigma no campaigns, and underreporting and stuff. Yeah. No,
1: no big advertisements, no systems set up to talk about them. It's not even in... The majority of workplaces, do they talk about male victims of domestic abuse? Even the unions don't talk about male victims of domestic abuse. And they will say, we subscribe to the gendered view that domestic violence is this. You know, it's atrocious and it's systemic.
0: A key turning point in this conversation, Debs, was a book by Evan Stark in 2007. And you said this book was particularly dangerous and Mm -hmm. harmful. When it comes to male victims of domestic abuse and the dogma yeah. that it's espoused. There was two quotes you wanted to read yeah. out, so if you haven't got them to hand, yeah, go I'm get gonna, them. I have got them but close I really by. Want I'm gonna the get listeners. them. I
1: really do <laughs> need to read them. Oh go, okay. go and
0: get them, go and get them. I'll leave this in, I'll leave this in. I'm gonna talk to myself whilst Deborah goes gets this book. Because there's two quotes in here which are I think very, very powerful for all of you listeners to hear. And once Deborah comes back, I'll let her read this for you. Oh. Right here. Okay, so Deborah is back and I'm going to let her read out these two quotes to you listeners. I will not be leaving that massive pause in. I'll be taking that out, so you won't need to hear that. And Deborah, do you want to read out those two yeah. quotes for me when you're ready? These
1: were um, these were quotes that really shocked me when I read this book. I read this book years ago, actually. I first got it because of being a victim myself. But as a researcher, one of the things that was drummed really drummed into me from my supervisor team was about you don't make any claim until you've got hard evidence. As a scientist, you 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 live and die by that rule. So this is in um, Evan Stark's the title of the book is Coercive Control How Men Entrap Women in Personal Life. So uh it, it from the very offset it, it sets out its stall. But on page uh, 102, this was, this was one of the first... Th- there's a lot that shocks me, but this was one of the first that, that really made me stop. Was He says, at this point, and he, he's talking about the enigma of abuse. At this point, I ask my readers to take two things on faith. <laughs> you really need to remember that word. That's not a face. good start. <laughs> <laughs> the, the pattern of intimidation, isolation and control is unique to men's abuse of women and that it is critical to explaining why women become entrapped in abusive relationships in ways that men do not. So no evidence, just faith. These tactics do not typify all forms of abuse but if we assume this pattern is gender specific it is used by a large number of men to coerce and control their partners. So the two key words, the two operative words in there are faith and assume, Mm. Mm. which was like, okay, not really feeling that, but this is what sums it up to me. And what this sums up to me is the level of filters, cognitive filters that one has to have in order to believe the paragraph I'm about to read out because in order to understand how shocking this paragraph is you must be aware that coercive control can involve physical abuse but it tends to be extreme and not very often it tends it tends to be the threat of violence more than the violence itself but it includes isolation economic abuse sexual abuse threats of using children. There's a huge amount in there. So I'm going to read this. This is on in the same book, and it's at um, on at the bottom of page 377. It's a real tome, this book. It's under a paragraph that's titled The Gendered Nature of Coercive Control. And it says this, women and men assault their partners in similar ways and with similar motives. And you think, okay, yeah. Recently... I worked with a husband who was hospitalised three times after his wife's jealous assaults. A wife who cut her husband several times because she believed he was sexually assaulting her daughter, although she later admitted this was a projection from her childhood. And an immigrant wife who was 15 years younger and much taller than the husband she regularly assaulted when she wanted money or when he questioned her about leaving their child unattended. (laughs) This is the sentence. But I have never had a case that involved a female perpetrator of coercive control, and no such cases are documented in the literature.
0: I mean, I actually am a bit speechless hearing that. So he's literally just written clear examples of evidence with female perpetrators mm-hmm. and then in the immediate next sentence as if yeah. do you know men in black when he gets the when he gets the um neuralizer yeah, yeah, yeah. out it's like well, he's done it to it's himself it's
1: gaslighting <laughs> it's gaslighting on a large scale it it does two it does two really sinister sinister things for me that one it completely excuses female violence and aggression completely dissolves it oh okay we all do it it's fine pump gone But then it gaslights everybody else because even if you go beyond the she hit him and cut him and this, that and the other, the actual subjects about that were when she wanted money. So that's economic abuse. Or when she was neglecting the child. Or when she was jealous. So she's obviously isolating. There's so much in that that is absolutely 100% coercive control. Yet no cases ever. It's bonkers I, and sinister.
0: I genuinely don't know what to say to that. One other very disturbing thing you told me as well, Deborah, as well, was this idea of a, a deluge model. Is that the correct one?
1: And strangely to, enough, to I've got about? the book at the same place because.
0: Oh, go on. It's, it talks about stalking and its influence on police tactics. Oh, no, is, this that, is that not... right? Can no, talk this, a little bit about this that? No,
1: about how the Duluth model is the power and control wheel. And actually, some of the behaviours in the eight segments of the power and control wheel are really good examples of of abuse and coercive control. And they can be applied, and I speak with experience of this, not just personal experience as a female, but experience for men as a researcher. And I'll tell you for why in a minute. The elements of of the Duluth (laughs) model that are in the outside of it like isolation, using children, economic abuse, all that, applicable absolutely for coercive control and abuse because they can be applied to anybody. The issue with the Duluth model is that they make it gendered and that they make it all about power and control. That's absolutely what they think it's about. And the bizarre thing is is a lot of abusers abuse because they've never had any power and control. They're trying to keep hold of what they think is power and control, which it really isn't. I'm just going to read out a couple of sentences that I put in a presentation recently. So this is the creator. This is from Ellen Pence, who was one of the co-creators of the Duluth model, which they absolutely specifically said is because men oppress women and therefore society allows domestic abuse to happen and then men abuse women. That's it. That's their absolute dogma. I won't criticise something until I've actually read it. So I read the two books around the Duluth model. So she's talking about some thoughts on the philosophy of the model that she created. And I'm going to read three points, as a just three little sentences as as a paragraph. So it says, speaking for myself, I found that many of the men I interviewed did not seem to articulate a desire for power and control over their partner eventually we realised that we were finding what we had already predetermined to find, researching from your conclusion. And then it goes on to say this on the next page. So this is in the Coordinating Community Responses to Domestic Violence, Lessons from Duluth and Beyond. It's by Melanie Shepherd and Alan Pence. I think it was 1999. Yeah. And the next page, page 30, says, in many ways... We turned a blind eye to some women's use of violence, their drug use and alcoholism, and their often harsh and violent treatment of their children. There did not seem to be a way to acknowledge these problems and still argue that this was a deeply gendered issue. So they actually admit they ignored women's violence, even when it was against their children, because it didn't fit their narrative.
0: Isn't there an example of that happening in the news right yeah, now, Deborah? Yeah, there is, wasn't with little a, Arthur. Wasn't the two people a stepmom and a dad? And all the news I've seen has been, the headlines have been like dad and yeah, partner and I thought, or ex- father and I something. thought exactly the same.
1: She was done for murder, he was done for manslaughter. But you need to take a step back before you even get into that unbelievably horrific situation, is that little Arthur was given to that vile couple because his biological mother was in prison for stabbing to death her partner. Oh, Jesus Christ. Okay. She was originally sentenced to murder and then she got it quashed to manslaughter because... and, And then if you read the case notes of that, she lied. He was covered up as she was escorted out. She didn't even flinch as she walked past. She said it was... Abusive and all that. I mean, she just lied. Even the judge said she lied all the way through it. But she's serving eleven years for murdering, well, manslaughter it is now, or stabbing to death her partner. And then little little Arthur was given to this couple. There's two things that, that strike me about this. What happened to his dad whilst he was in the relationship with his biological mum? Because from what I can see. And I am not excusing him in any way. But it was clear that in that relationship, the stepmother was the person that was leading that abuse. She made him stand by walls for 14 hours a day. She poisoned his food with an overdose of salt. And it's now suspected that she smashed his head against a wall and that's what ultimately killed him after starving him. They had a CCTV camera in the living room, because he was made to sleep in the living room. And the reason they had a CCTV camera put in there, and this was all shown in court, of him screaming and wailing that nobody loves him and nobody's going to feed him. He knew what was happening to him. That camera was put there to make sure that he didn't get on the sofa. He was made to sleep on the floor. So this is what, what these people did to him. And she was the one that murdered him. His dad didn't protect him and actually encouraged the abuse to go on. And that's why he was sentenced to manslaughter. He didn't actually do the murdering, but he was implicit in it. So, yes, my argument here is one of the key arguments to my basis of why I truly and will fight all my life to say that this is not a gendered issue. Because let's look at this with his biological mum. She met her partner who she stabbed to death in an alcohol rehabilitation course, okay? No one suddenly becomes violent like that. So there's something that could have been done when she was in that course. If she was aggressive, if she was a violent, there should have been something to help her, support her not to be aggressive, to manage her emotions or her mental health or a addiction or something so that she didn't end up stabbing someone to death. Okay. But because female violence is not taken seriously and they are not judged to be perpetrators because this is a man against women's is- issue, there aren't any, or many, there certainly aren't many, support groups set up to help women who perpetrate aggression. So they left without support. They're left to get to the point where they're stabbing someone to death and then they're sentenced to 11 years and they lose their child. I mean, that woman, I don't know her, and she obviously did something horrible by stabbing a man to death and got sentenced for it. But she's now got to live with the fact that she did that and her son got put in a place where he was tortured, poisoned and murdered and she couldn't protect him. I imagine she's traumatised by that as well.
0: It seems to me, I don't know what you think here, that the gender violence or the gender argument is only selectively used. So if this was just a man doing it, obviously there would be widespread condemnation, but there'd also be... This is men perpetrating on children. This is men warped men. Blah 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 blah. But because the stepmom is leading, has led it, therefore there's no mention of it,
1: and the, and the funny or thing no is, no mention
0: of her in the in the article, not in the articles, but I mean in in the commentary yes, on it. Absolutely. I should say sorry.
1: And the other thing is, is I went on social media and I had a look at the victims commissioners, what they would have said about this. Like if the woman had been murdered, what they would have been shouting about all over social media. And quite frankly, the silence is deafening. There was one barrister yeah. who's a feminist barrister who just wrote no words. And I thought, that's bullshit. I've got plenty of words. That woman just murdered that boy. Why can't you say that? What is it that's stopping these people just going, that woman tortured and murdered that boy? A six-year-old boy. I can't it insults, say
0: it. it insults his legacy, I feel. It insults, it insults his memory. Yeah,
1: it really does. It's sickening. But he's not the first. And I guarantee it won't be the last. There was a a case of a man. I think it was in Manchester. There was a domestic homicide review. A man in Manchester, I'm sure it was. I think it might be on the Mankind Initiative website. They did a review on this man that was murdered by his female partner.
0: This wasn't the one where she said she phoned up the police, was it? And she said it really matter-of-factly.
1: No, that was the one where she stabbed him in oh, the heart. Okay. Yeah, that was recently. Yeah, yeah, this yeah, was yeah. this was an on, this was yeah. ongoing. And he'd been in The hospital and all sorts of things. And one of the things they found when you read through it is the opportunities that the authorities, various authorities had to be able to step in. And the actual review found, and I must try and see if Manchester Council have actually done something about this. One of the recommendations was that the fact that they had a gendered notion of domestic abuse meant the perpetrator wasn't seen as a perpetrator and he was not seen as a victim. So essentially she was allowed to murder him because at every stage where he could have been stopped, he was portrayed as the perpetrator, even when he was physically injured. And this is what happens. It is, mm. it is. there's a bit, let, let me see if I can find it. In this Duluth book again, there's a bit in it where, and, and it's just full of this. They're all much of a muchness. There's a bit where it's talking about it's kind of dismissing the impact on men, which will lead into my research, if, if you don't mind. But it says uh, they had a sample of women that had been court mandated to go and attend the Duluth model. The court had said, you're an aggressive woman. You've, you've got to do it. And they were trying to say, but men don't get frightened of being attacked by women. There's, there's no real impact. Let me see if I can find it. So it's all this thing about Jackie, a white woman in her 30s, thought she was tough, yet her conduct didn't scare him at all. It didn't change his behaviour. Similarly, when she attacked him, Adele stated that her partner laughed at me. He thought it was funny. He just laughed at me. Only when women pick up weapons, guns, knives and household objects did their partner become temporarily afraid. And this I mean, is this is the way they talk about women committing serious abuse on men, and they go, "Ah, oh, but he didn't. He was just laughing. It was nothing." And it's all about if you if you said to a woman, "He only controlled you. It didn't really have any impact on you." Can you imagine the outcry? Can you imagine victim blaming, all the rest of it? How dare you! This is you know indicative of the patriarchy taking women's violence women's um, mm. victimisation as normal. And yet you can say, ah, oh, when they pick up weapons, they're a bit scared, but it doesn't last long. What, absolute bullshit. This is the model that is currently sat in our framework for domestic abuse. The one that's just got a cent, the Domestic Abuse Act. If you look at the framework, there's a great big DeLuce wheel in there with power and control in it. The first two sentences are, Although men can be victims of domestic abuse, the overwhelming majority of victims of domestic abuse are women due to the societal inequalities against women. That's our Mm. law guidance.
0: I mean, God help male victims if that's what the status is at the moment. You said that another common tool is a kettle when it comes to female perpetrators and they often attack men when they are... Asleep or drunk. Yeah. So, is that when, true?
1: yes, is <laughs> the, the short answer. Women that physically abuse, I need to take a step back. There's a huge amount of data that shows the most common form of domestic abuse is bi directional. And that's just over half of all domestic abuse is seen to be bi-directional. Now that means there's a, an abusive relationship between both of them. Doesn't necessarily mean they're having fist fights against each other at the same time. Bidirectional. So it's, it's, it's an abusive toxic relationship. I'm right. not saying the people in it are toxic, the relationship in and of itself is, is toxic. And one can be physically aggressive, one can be coercively aggressive. It's a combination of all the above. But yeah. essentially, Both of them have issues. That means they're either emotional deregulation. They've never been taught to manage conflict. They might have learned that that's the way you manage conflict. It might be mental health. It might be addiction, all the other reasons, certainly not societal oppression. Okay. And then when you look at men and women that are not in bi-directional abusive relationships, it tends to be more or less equal. Although there is a lot of data that shows that men are more slightly more likely to be victimized than women okay which when i say that on social media often results in me getting called a misogynist (laughs) a lot (laughs) so when my research last year was born of covid i think i might have told you this i was due to do a study a week after we got put into our first lockdown, which was a pilot study of 10 male victims of domestic abuse doing peer mentoring and walking in the Lake District. I'm still going to do that study. It's just been shelved while we're in the middle of a pandemic. But I was about to go live and Boris shut the country down. The world had gone into lockdown. And I just thought, what would I ask men in the UK if I had them all locked in a room? So I wrote this huge, relatively huge questionnaire, thinking it would be incredible to ask them all these questions. And I included four psychological scales that was from types of abuse, impact of abuse, coping mechanisms and any positive adaption. So in my hypothesis, it gave me a pathway to the experience of male victims But on top of that, I asked over 40 open and closed questions. And some of them are what I call myth busters. So I asked them, I asked men if they were frightened in their relationship. I asked them why they were frightened. I asked them what stopped them getting help. I asked them why they didn't go to help. I asked so many questions. It is unbelievable. And what types of abuse, all sorts. And then six months later... In between that one and my next one, the Home Office had released an updated report on coercive control, where again, they almost cited the same as Evan Stark because he was instrumental in writing our coercive control law and our framework. So it says, oh, this is something that affects women overwhelmingly or disproportionately. It's one of those two words and doesn't really bother men. So my supervisor, Nikki, phoned me and said, you know that survey that you did at the beginning of the year? Yeah. Do you want to do it again? But this time we focus on coercive control. And the first survey, we got it through ethics in three weeks and then we only had three weeks because I was trying to get it before lockdown to do it. We got 1,347 participants, which in domestic abuse research terms, let alone domestic abuse research with male victims, is concerned, is huge. And there was a a proportion in the UK, big sample in India, uh, big sample in Australia and North America and Canada. And then when we did the coercive control study, we did 45 items and questions around impact on physical health, impact on psychological health, and impact on choice and freedom, which is a, a real indicator of coercive control. And I translated that into, I think, 21 languages in the end. And again, we only had a short amount of time to release that in. And we got over uh, well, almost 2,100 participants. I think it was 2,086 altogether. And again, big samples across the the aforementioned countries And some of the results from that were heartbreaking and terrifying. So in the first one, I asked the question about being afraid. And over three quarters of the men said they were afraid of their partners. But not their partners directly, more the behaviours of their partners. And that included consequences towards them and consequences towards their children. But one of the key fears like it was um, removed in that question for the Office for National Statistics, was losing contact with their children if they left the abusive relationship or mentioned that she was abusive. And then they also spoke about being afraid of being attacked by their partner. There was one guy that scored really high on post-traumatic distress. And when I tracked back, he had a real issue in sleeping. And then when I looked at how he described the types of abuse he'd experienced, it was because he was often, these were his words, woken up in the middle of the night by having a boiling kettle poured on him. (sighs) So, yeah, he'd be asleep. And, you know, who wants that when you're asleep? And he still, even to this day, and it was years after he'd left the relationship, he was having trouble sleeping because, obviously, the body remembers that trauma.
0: You said... As well that and this is a stat that I'll ask you to source if you can. One in five male victims are forced to penetrate on a regular basis. Yeah, this was
1: taken directly from that study, which is now published and that particular statistic is in that report. We wrote a report for Research England for male victims of coercive control and their experiences at impact. In the sexual coercive control, which is often positioned as something that doesn't doesn't affect men at all. This is something that, again, disproportionately affects women. And it does affect women. There's no doubt about it. Mm -hmm. But I asked Mm -hmm. the question, were you forced to penetrate by your abusive partner? And the scale that I had went never, rarely, sometimes, often and always. And we did that for every one of the 45 items. And again, you can see that in the report. And I will send you a link that you can put in to get that report.
0: Mm-hmm. I'll put it on the show notes.
1: Um, and 22% actually, it's just over one in five, said they experienced being forced to penetrate, sometimes, often, or always. So it's a pattern of abuse.
0: That wouldn't be classified as rape then under the law. No,
1: it'd be classed as... It, it carries the same sentencing. So I think it carries up to 15 years. But again, when I talk to victims about this... Those that are that would like it prosecuted would like it categorized as rape because mm. linguistically and societally rape is seen as a heinous crime, whilst being forced to penetrate is more easily dismissed. I would say.
0: Is so currently then would that be classified as sexual assault? Then what would the scale like? What would the scale yeah? Be? I think
1: it's classed as serious oh. sexual assault, which strangely enough is a different category. There's some great research <laughs> by Siobhan Weir at Lancaster University and she did one of the first studies on men being forced to penetrate and her paper I said I, I'm not sure it's widely accessible but she's done a fantastic paper on that and what I did is literally take that and put it into domestic abuse situations mm. because there was a huge amount of men as well that were I'll tell you a story about this Denial of sex was used as a, as a punishment as well, not just saying, I've got a headache, I'm not into it, or whatever. I'm just trying to see if I can get my report up so I can give you that. However, the evidence for Australian male victims, which across the two surveys, I've got nearly a thousand male victims from Australia. There's a, an organisation in Australia called One in Three that is about male victims. They asked me if they could submit my. Percentages for each item of pattern of abuse into a Australian court review of coercive control because they're thinking of having coercive control as a law in Australia in the same way that we have. And I said, yes, of course. You know, it's it's not been tested in other statistical ways, but it is the raw numbers if if you want to do that. And strangely enough, the question of sex being denied as a form of punishment was really harshly challenged by a feminist that was on the panel. However, Greg, who heads up one in three, because I'd seen it used for female victims, and he actually went away and found it in an Australian victim support service that is set up to support female victims of coercive control. And that question was asked of women. Does your partner withhold sex as punishment? And so Greg went back to the court and answered that challenge and said actually this is something that we routinely ask of female victims so of course why wouldn't we ask it of male victims so I found that report I'm just going to go down to some of the stats now to give you some sort of top line information so for example for economic abuse in our first survey we asked does your partner control your money because often we're told that men can easily leave an abusive relationship because they have access to money. Even though women have been a substantial part of the workforce for a very long time now, it's still seen as something that's very patriarchal and, and men have money and, and women don't. In our first survey, 71% of the men said that they had their money controlled, sometimes, often or always. And in the second survey, I think it was just over half Said the same on economic abuse And again all these numbers are there Yeah controlling your earnings 50% But yeah in the second survey Was where I put in the sexual abuse items So humiliating you if you refuse to have sex 44% of men said they'd experienced that As a pattern of abuse Threatening to make false allegations About sexual assault or rape 28% So almost a third of men had been subjected to that as a pattern of abuse, not just as a one-off, as a pattern. Forcing to penetrate them without consent or by coercing consent, 22%. Threatening you with violence if you refuse to have sex was 14%, which sounds trivial compared to the others, but that's almost one in six. And then threatening to have sex with others was 32%. Jesus. Stopping contraception without your knowledge, 29%. So that's the men that know. You have to remember, this is the men that know that this has happened to them. There'll be a lot of men out there that don't know that the contraception's been stopped without their consent. There's
0: an argument at the moment, which is a justifiable one, where on the male side, if you don't tell a woman mm. that you've taken off a condom... Is it called
1: stealthing or something? Yeah.
0: Stealthing, yeah. So, female female. so isn't this the female yeah, version absolutely.
1: Of Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Yeah. But we don't talk about that, do we? Apart from me. And then withholding sex as punishment, 65% of men got that. And then criticizing your sexual performance to humiliate you. Not just saying that was a bit shit, but to actually humiliate you, 53%. Economic abuse in this country is positioned as something that only happens to women. And then, so if we take a look at the first survey in this, Economic abuse in our first survey only had four factors, four items. It was made difficult to work or study, 87%. Control my money, 71%. Kept own money secret, 80%. And refused to share money or pay fair share. That means pay your fair share of your household bills. And fair share means that if someone's earning double than you, You'd expect them to pay more than you, you know, in that instance. 75% of men said that. In the second survey, which got over 2,000, I put in 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9 items because what I was able to do was extract information from my first survey and then try to confirm it in this second one. So what came through is all these elements that I'm going to talk talk about came through as themes from my first survey and were amalgamated with those other items I've just talked about. Threatening to contact your employer, 36%. The story that really comes home to me on that was about a retired senior police officer who said his chief inspector level said his partner would coerce him and be violent to him and then tell him, that if he didn't do what she said, she would send an email to his boss telling his boss that he was a rapist.
0: Jesus so Christ. So you can
1: imagine that, you know, this is a chief inspector. If that That is a hugely powerful tool of coercion. Trying to embarrass you in front of work colleagues, 44%. And what was interesting is when reports talk about female victims of economic abuse, and I'm not denying them in any way, they absolutely do exist. I've been there. They talk about women being prevented to go from work. But here, 41% of men said they were prevented to go to work. However, there was a flip side in my first survey, which 32% of men said they were forced to go to work even when they were unwell. Controlling your earnings here, half, 50%. Overspending or running up debts for which you were responsible, 60%. Taking out debts in your name without your knowledge, 29%. Refusing to contribute to household bills while spending own money on non-essential items, 62%. Refusing to work even if they are able, 54%. And finally, and probably the worst one, withholding contact with children unless demands for money are met, 51%.
0: That is pretty shocking. So
1: you, that's that's using two that, children for currency.
0: That's terrifying.
1: So yeah, and there's there's a lot more with a lot higher percentages mm. controlling who you see. Eighty-seven percent putting you down as a pattern of abuse. Ninety-seven percent. It's just, and then just you've got, on got on, Evan Stark it? saying, yeah. "Never has he seen an example of a man being coercively controlled."
0: The cognitive dissonance is just on a level I've never seen in a long time. Well, it's
1: because it's ideological. It's dogma. Mm. It's not science.
0: We could talk about forever. this all night, <laughs> yeah. devs but we could talk about this forever. Honestly, I think I think it'd be great to have you back on. Actually, when you do some more work on this and you you can share these results as well, because I think it'd be great. It'd be great to have you on. I've got one more question mm-hmm. left, which I wanted to ask you, and it's a question I think you'll really enjoy too, because I want the listeners to know about the group therapy trial mm-hmm. you did with some men's groups to help them open up about their mental health. Now, I've spoken a few times on this podcast about the benefits I've taken from doing EMDR therapy. I'm just mm-hmm. about to finish at the time of recording my second round. You said. Tried to mirror that through this trial. Can you tell the listeners well, about that?
1: Well, this is the trial that was furloughed for want of a, a, a better word. And what what I'm trying to do on that, we haven't conducted it yet.
0: Oh, right, okay. Well, there's my note. No, it's fine. <laughs>
1: That's <also> fine. But <laughs> but it's also something that I would like to do on a larger scale. Initially, I was only going to do it on a pilot scheme for 10, and I would like to do it on a larger scale now that I've done these surveys. And it was based on a number of different elements, some conceptual. Some lived experience, some very robustly put forward. But it's it's about combining elements that I think would be beneficial to men, particularly in this instance for male victims of domestic abuse, but generally for any type of trauma. And it brings in elements of what you've just said, which is the EDMR.
0: EMDR. EMDR,
1: which is about... Um, <laughs> We don't really know exactly how it works, but it's about the rhythmic reprogramming of responses to trauma. And I hope to mirror that with walking. So the rhythms of walking in, in, oh, in the lovely. same kind of element. There's the benefits of peer mentoring. So my view is that working with a, a couple of other psychologists from Cumbria University, we would set this up interview men prior to the study, interview them after, be there if they needed psychologist intervention. But actually, we're just there to monitor and keep this together because I watched a documentary about a fire department in 9-11 and it was a documentary created by Steve Belushi, is it? Mm-hmm. He played Mr. Pink in Reservoir Dogs.
0: Yep, Before yeah, he was yeah. a
1: famous actor, he was a fireman and when 911 happened he went back to his firehouse and started digging people out of the rubble and went to help them and then 10 years after he did a documentary i think it might be on youtube it's called a good job fire department new york the story of that is about these men and all the different traumatic fires that they'd experienced up until 911 and then the impact of 911 and essentially what I took from that is that they were saying that they sent all these psychologists like me in to talk about the trauma and stuff. And none of the firemen wanted to go near them because they were like, you don't know what I'm talking about. You've never been in my situation. How are you going to to counsel me, as it were? So what the psychologists did is train senior firemen to be the peer mentors. So they could set up group therapy, they could set up peer mentoring, they could set up all these things and call in the psychologist if, if something else needed to be brought in. And I thought that is beautiful because I think a great deal of our counselling is set up based on the experiences of women. And therefore we kind of set men up for a fall because I don't think the stuff that we have available is exactly appealing to a huge amount of men so how about if i trialed this and did some clinical trials about well psychological trials about it to see if it works so these men essentially would be walking using the the rhythmic elements of i've lost me letters now emdr edmr
0: emdr one of them
1: and (laughs) and peer mentoring so they could all talk to each other they could understand they were not alone they could help each other out depending on how far they were on their recovery journey but then I also live in a beautiful part of the world where there are psychological benefits to being outdoors and I found a guy a professor in Japan who had actually done clinical trials on what we call forest bathing and found that trees release this I don't know what you would call it kind of like a a hormone or a pollen or something that we absorb through our skin and it lowers our cortisol levels and it has a long-term impact on our cortisol levels. So I'm trying to combine all these benefits to, to help healing, but also I'm asking the men to keep a diary because there's evidence that shows that expressive writing and just getting it out onto something can also help you adapt to trauma. And we're going to interview the men, but I'm also going to issue them with a Fitbit so we can monitor their heart rates and their sleep patterns. So we can then bring all that data together, heart rates, sleep patterns, diaries, interviews, and then analyse that and then hopefully set up something that allows people to manage this on a psychological level for victims of trauma.
0: Well, Debs, I hope that... Gets back off the ground and up and running, and because it sounds like just like an absolutely amazing, amazing amazing bit of work. Thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast. It's been
1: an absolute pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to part two of deborah Poundy's podcast that's all we've got time for on this episode of the just checking in podcasts thank you so much to all the listeners if you've listened to part one and two if you've just listened to part two not a problem thank you for listening to that as well i'll sign us off by saying if you've liked what you've heard please give it a share on all the usual social media channels tell your friends tell your work colleagues about it tell your family if you want to support us further, you can drop us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That will really, really help us out with all of those algorithms and help spread the word about the podcast and VENT. If you want to support us even further, you can do so by going to our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash help UK. If you don't want to do that, you can go to our GoFundMe and make one after nation. That link is on our link tree and is across all of our channels. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it's always okay to VENT.